Good morning. Let me uh, start off by asking you a couple of very important questions. How do you think God looks at you? Second, what do you think he wants from you? And how do you really feel about God? Now, these are three of the most important questions of your life. And how you answer them will uh, affect every area of your life profoundly. It will determine how you uh, live your life. It will determine how you treat other people. It will determine how you approach every issue in your life. So let me ask them again. How do you think God looks at you? What do you think he wants from you? And how do you really feel about God? See, Jesus came to this earth basically for two reasons. First, he came to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have access to the Father, so we could come to know the Father. And second, he came to this earth to make the Father known, to tell us and to show us what God's really like, how God looks at us, how, what he wants from us. Fact is that without Jesus and his ministry, we couldn't know how God feels about us, what he thinks about us, what he wants from us. And so our feelings about him will be confused and distorted. Well, this morning we have the opportunity to look at one of the most important, most powerful, most significant teachings of our Lord. What Jesus has to say this morning is one of the most important things you'll ever consider. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke 15. And look, starting with the first couple of verses. This is where Jesus makes the Father known. Now, Jesus starts by, uh, or Luke starts by telling us there was a group of people who were upset with Jesus. Uh, that sets the context for everything that Jesus says. Let me read these first two verses. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, you've got four groups of people that are around Jesus. You've got the tax gatherers, you have sinners, you have uh, the Pharisees, and then you have the teachers of the law, which were also known as scribes. The tax gatherers and the sinners, they were intrigued with Jesus. The, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were upset with Jesus. Now, let me tell you a little about who these people were. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They, uh, the scribes were the professionals. They were the professional teachers, the seminary professors, the, the theologians. And they had as, as their mission to study the Bible, study the scriptures, to determine what God really wants from people. And they saw themselves as, as protectors of the scripture, protecting the Bible from being misinterpreted and, uh, and distorted. Now, we need this kind of people around, people who will really study the scriptures and tell us when we're missing the mark, when we misinterpret it, who will, who will help us understand. Because there's a lot of people out there who are tearing the scriptures apart, saying it says stuff it doesn't say, leading a lot of people astray. To be honest with you, I have been trained as a scribe. My, uh, the school I went to was actually called Scribe school. That's where my 
training is. That's, to some degree, what my mission is. And the Pharisees, they um, were the lay leaders. They weren't professionals. They were dedicated lay leaders. You're kind of your elder and your deacon type who, who uh, were typically fairly well off. They were usually landowners, had the time to commit to uh, leading and ministering and teaching. And they helped people understand in very practical terms what God wanted of them. Now, these men were dedicated to God. They saw their role as protecting the truth about God from those who would dishonor God. And again, we need people like this who will help lead us. Now, the uh, tax collectors, these were Israelites who worked for the Roman government. See, Rome had conquered Israel. Uh, Israel was occupied by Roman troops. And these tax collectors worked for the government collecting taxes. They were collaborators. People hated them for it, resented them. These men were notoriously dishonest. They used their relationship with the occupying armies to uh, their own financial advantage. They would take advantage of their fellow Israelites. And as a result, they were really hated. And then sinners. That was the name that the scribes and the Pharisees had for kind of your common folk, your your lower class. Uh, These were people who uh, didn't go to church, people who probably drank a little bit too much on the weekend. They didn't know how you were supposed to act around religious people. These people probably listened to country western music or maybe rock and roll, maybe even a little bit of rap. They were basically good people. They just didn't follow all the stuff that was expected of them religiously. You see, the problem was that Jesus was hanging around with this kind of people. People who didn't have much time for God, didn't pay attention to what God said and the rules that God laid out. In fact, he was even eating with them. He was going into their homes and and acting like he was friends with them. And this is very confusing to the scribes and Pharisees. Here's somebody who is supposed to represent God, and he's hanging out with people who don't have time for God. You know, how could this be? They felt like he was was, uh, giving them the wrong message that they were okay when they can't be okay. They're not following the rules. This was very upsetting to the scribes and Pharisees. They thought that Jesus was misrepresenting God, that he was defaming God's holy character, that he was leading a lot of people astray. Of course they were upset. What would happen if everybody thought there were no standards? If if, if people started thinking it wasn't important to to obey the Bible, what would happen to society? Where would it go? What would happen to the truth? See, these people, these men were genuinely concerned with where the society was going. They saw that they needed to protect society and religion from this kind of influence. These men basically thought that God loves all Jews initially. I mean, when you become a Jew, you, uh, through uh, conversion or through bar mitzvah, you enter into the adult Jewish uh, society, and God loves you as one of his people. But at that point, what God wants from you is that you follow the rules. If you don't follow the rules, not just the rules in the Bible, but the ones that were added on to make sure that you would followed the ones that were in the Bible. If you don't follow these rules, then you fall out of favor with God. You become what they called a sinner. 
God became angry with you. He hated you. But if you follow the rules, all of them, then you, you, you maintain favor in God's sight and you get to go to heaven at the end. Now be honest with me. Isn't that uh, how a lot of us view Christianity? That it works kind of the same way? God loves you when you come in, but then he's got these rules that he wants you to follow. And if you follow them all, in the end you get to go to heaven. According to the Pharisees, these people who Jesus was hanging out with were, had fallen out of favor with God. God was angry with them. God hated them. And good church-going folk wouldn't hang out with them. In fact, what's more, that the best thing that could possibly happen would be for some terrible calamity to befall these people so that everyone would see just what happens when you don't follow the rules. In fact, in the uh, uh, Pharisaical commentary on the law, there was a quote that said, There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish. You see, that's how they thought God felt about sinners. So Jesus tells them uh, some stories to correct their view. Now, we looked at, at the first two stories last week very briefly, and I want to get on to the third story. But let me review real quickly. In the first story, Jesus uh, compares God to a shepherd who's lost one of his sheep. Now, that in itself would have been terribly offensive to the Pharisees because shepherds were the lowest class of people. They were usually orphans and, and street kids that the, the Pharisees... And others would hire and send out in the fields to take care of their sheep. These kids were rough street kids. They didn't go to church. They didn't do all the, the, the ritual cleansing. And they, they, were, they were unreliable. In fact, legally, a shepherd could not testify in court in Israel because they were assumed that their testimony would be unreliable. And here's Jesus comparing God to one of these. But the point Jesus makes is that there is rejoicing in heaven, not when the sheep gets killed so all the other sheep know not to stray. No, it's when the sheep is found. That's when heaven erupts into celebration. And if that wasn't offensive enough, in the next story, Jesus compares God to a woman. Now, in their way of thinking, that would have been even worse. But you see, the fact is, that God's delight when one sinner repents is like the, the delight and the relief when, when a woman finds her most valued and precious possession. God has absolutely no qualms about being identified with the emotions of a woman. That's how he feels. That's how he celebrates when one sinner repents. Okay, well, let's walk through the next parable, the story of the father and his two sons. And I'm just going to go line by line. Starts in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. As we'll see, these sons represent the people who are around Jesus. The younger son was the sinners. The older son was the Pharisees. And even though the, the, the picture of God's love, the Father's love for the, for the sinners, for the younger son, is beautiful, keep in mind that he's actually talking to the Pharisees, to the older son. The younger son said to his father, 
Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, it's important that you catch what he's saying here. In an oriental culture like the Middle East, this would never happen. A son would never talk to his father like this. This would have been incredibly disrespectful and hurtful. See, a a, a man may choose to divide his inheritance before he died if he wanted his sons to run the business and he could retire. But a son would never ask for it. That would be the equivalent of saying to his father, I wish you were dead and out of the way. All you are to me is is a source of money and things. What I want is for you to be out of the way so I can have the stuff that's important to me. You aren't important to me. See, that's what he would have been saying. That's what the father would have heard. In a uh, traditional oriental society like this, what would be expected of the father at this point is to slap that son, to disown him, and run him out of the house. That's how the Pharisees would have responded. That's how they would have advised each other to respond. But that's not how the father responds. He divided his property between them. Since there are two sons and the older one gets a double portion, that would mean the older son got uh, two-thirds of the property. The younger son got one-third. Now, as an aside here, the older son is conspicuously absent at this point. In that culture, what would have been expected of the older son would be to intervene and try to bring peace and work it out. But he's staying distant and aloof. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. Literally, it's he converted it into cash. You've got to understand how destructive that act was. In that society, wealth was measured in land and in herds. A man spent his whole life acquiring land so that he could enrich the the family's wealth and pass it on to future generations. See, land was a source of all kinds of wealth. It was also the measure of of prestige by how much land you own. These, These Pharisees were landowners. And this young man, by selling off The land was not only robbing future generations, he was diminishing his father's stature among his peers. He was doing irreparable damage to the entire family. He's burning some serious bridges here. Now, the the, the text says that he converted it quickly. He probably did it quickly because the whole family would have been outraged, furious at this incredible selfishness. Anyway, he took this money and he set out for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. You know, here's a totally undisciplined young man. No concern for the future. He wants what he wants and he wants it now. Totally unrealistic about about what's going to happen. He's in a new country. He doesn't know a lot of people. He wants to break into society. He's got a pocket full of cash. So he starts to throw parties and invite all the people that he wants to impress all the people he wants to become friends with. But when the money's gone, so are the friends. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
See, right about here, the Pharisees are thinking, this is a great story. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is what that kid deserved. I mean, he is starving to death in the filth and, de- excuse me, filth and degradation of a pigsty. That's what should happen. Kid should die face down in the muck. You see, there was nothing more revolting to a, to a Jew than pigs and their filth. Pigs are stinky animals. When I was a kid, to get to the swimming pool that we would, would go to, we had to drive through this little valley in which a, a pig farmer lived. We named that valley uh, Smellsville. Because literally, in that hot summer sun, to, uh, when you drove through that little valley, you had to hold your nose if you wanted to keep the uh, contents of your stomach in place. It was terrible. Here's this guy in that kind of filth. A Jew, all of his life, had been told how revolting and repulsive pigs are. They become ill just at the mention of pigs. And here is this young man just covered with that filth and shame. How appropriate. Then Jesus starts to undo his story. He says, when he came to his senses, by the way, sin messes up our thinking. In order to choose sin, we've got to deceive ourselves. We've got to convince ourselves that reality is as we want it. And it's all going to work out okay. The fact is, reality is as God designed it. And we're out of our senses if we think that choosing sin is going to work out for us. Anyway, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Now, this is the beginning of repentance. I'm sure he's reached the bottom, but that's not necessary for repentance. What is necessary is to start the process of remembering, talking to yourself, reminding yourself of the truth. See, this this young man now starts to think about his father and his generosity. And before he had presumed on that generosity, he had, he had taken advantage of it, just trampled all over it. He thought his father owed him that inheritance. He wasn't looking at his father. He was looking at the stuff, what he deserved, what he wanted. But now he starts to think about his father and he remembers his character, that he is generous and loving. See, a hired servant was the lowest form of servant. In those days you had household servants, which were almost part of the family. You took care of them. They were valuable. You had relationship with them. They were an important part of your family. But a hired servant was just a day worker. You went out, hired him, used him for a day or two, and then he was gone. You didn't really care that much about him. You had no investment, no real interest. If one was injured or killed, there were plenty more to hire on. This young man starts thinking, but my father took care of even these. He gave them more than enough food. That's the kind of person my father is. That's his character. Generous, giving. So he keeps talking to himself. Again, we should talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. But he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. See, this is true repentance. All presumption is gone. He doesn't say, well, I'm still his son. He's got to take care of me. No, he didn't. In fact, in that culture, the father had every right 
to have his son executed. The father didn't need to take care of him. The son honestly faces his sin against God and against his father. Doesn't call it a mistake, a slip up. He doesn't blame it on anyone or anything else. He faces it squarely. He says, I have sinned. And then he faces honestly the consequences of that sin. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is accurate, honest, responsible thinking here. Recognizing that he doesn't deserve anything. This is, what, this is what repentance looks like. We recognize that we forfeit all rights and privileges. But then repentance hopes on God's grace. See, this young man hoped on his father's grace. That his father would be gracious enough to take him back in as a servant and let him work for his food. But still, coming back to his father would have taken a lot of courage on this young man's account. His father had every right, and he, this young man, had every reason to expect his father to reject him. Like I said before, his father had every right to ask the villagers to execute him. A man by the name of Daryl Johnson, who was a missionary to the Issachar people in Philippines, says he was telling this story to them. He stopped right here and he asked them, what would happen next? One of the elders got up and said, well, very clearly... The uh, villagers would go out and beat this young man and starve him to death. That was what was expected. See, and that's what this young man, the rejection this young man had to face. But he hoped in his father's grace. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, this is incredible. Now, this had to be blowing the Pharisees' circuits right about now. I mean, this story no longer sounded credible. This couldn't be happening. A father wouldn't do this, especially not a responsible land-owning gentleman like a Pharisee. They wouldn't act this way. You see, here is this dignified, responsible, mature man sees his son a long ways off. And we've got to assume that he was looking for him every day, longing to see his son. The Pharisees, the Pharisees would have assumed that he wouldn't want to see a son like this ever again. He liked to have him out of his life. But this man, when he sees his son a long ways off, he runs, he races to him. This dignified, wealthy kind of... Uh, a proper gentleman lifts up his robes and runs flat out right through the village to his son who he sees coming toward the village. I mean, all dignity is abandoned. All concern about what anybody else thinks is forgotten. He just wants to love his boy. And he hugs his son. Now remember, this son had to stink to high heaven. He was covered with filth. He had not bathed. He was, he, he, his clothes were rotting off of him. Not only was he physically dirty, he was ritually unclean. Just to touch him would have defiled his father. But what matters to his father is loving his boy. The text tells us that the father kissed him. The word there means repeatedly kissed him. 
He covered him with kisses. He couldn't stop kissing him. There was no restraint, no reserve. He is flat out loving his boy. The relationship uh, starting to be restored, but the the boy wants to, to, to give his speech. Now, this was important. He needed to say this to his father. So he says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's as far along the speech as he gets, and his father whisks him away. Actually, he didn't need to ask to be taken back as a servant. By that time, his father had already embraced him. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring out the best robe, one of, his fa- one of the father's own robes, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger. This was a signet ring. A ring that authorized that young man to conduct business for his father. It was the authority to to be a partner with his father. And put sandals on his feet. Servants were barefoot. Only sons wore sandals. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. A calf was the best as far as feast food. You're ranking as far as feast food went. You had poultry, then you could have a lamb, then you could have a goat. Then you could have a calf. That was the most expensive. That was the best there was. That was was the, the greatest celebration. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. See, the relationship is restored. The father and the son are together. They love each other. The son is overwhelmed by the love of the father. And the father is delirious with the joy of of the freedom to love his son, to have him back to life to him. See, people, this is God's heart. This is the father's heart. This is how God looks at you. Even if you've just treated him as, as someone to give you his blessings, to give you life and health, just to give you things... And to get out of the way so you can enjoy him. You haven't wanted him. You've wanted him out of the way so that you could do your own thing. Well, come to your senses. Recognize that, that you don't deserve anything from him. You have no demands. You can't walk in and, and tell him what he has to do. He owes you nothing but death. But then remember his character. Remember he is forgiving. He is loving. He'll deal with you individually. But you can count on his character holding true. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a loving relationship. He's waiting. He wants you to come home. That's how God looks at you. But that isn't the end of the story. In fact, it's not even the main point of the story. Let me just finish reading the rest of the story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look here. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, the older brother coming in from the field and he hears the party. He hears the celebration. And here's the first clue you get that something isn't right here. Because he doesn't immediately say, whoa, something wonderful must have happened. My father's happy. And rush in and join the celebration. No, he is immediately suspicious. He doesn't trust his father. And so he sends, asks one of the, the, the young servants who's probably outside the house looking in through the window to come, tell him what's going on. And when he hears, he is angry. And he refuses to go in. Now realize this is totally inappropriate. This is defiance. This is going to shame his father publicly. You see, it was the, in that culture, it was the responsibility of the oldest son to be the host, to welcome the guests, to take care of their needs so that the father could lead the celebration. And this young man refuses to go in. He is shaming his father, refusing to be hospitable in front of all of the guests. Well, what should the father do? Culturally, the father should have gone out, slapped him, and demanded that he perform his duty as the eldest son, that he do what was expected of him. Father should have publicly humiliated him for this insolence and shamed him. The father should have saved face. But again, we see the heart of this father. He goes out in front of everybody. And he pleads with his son. He doesn't slap him. He doesn't shame him. He begs him, please come in. Join the celebration. Well, the father or the son still feels justified in his resistance. Now the father is not following the rules. He's not doing what he should do. And so the son further shames the father by speaking insolently to him. He doesn't address him as father in that culture. The, the son should have walked up to his father with his head bowed and said, Father, before he spoke. But he doesn't. He says, listen here. I've done everything for you and you've done nothing for me. And then this son of yours comes home. You kill the fatted calf. And notice he calls him this son of yours. He doesn't say my brother. He says, your son. When, when someone is called the son of someone in Scripture, there's an intentional attempt to compare their character. And, and basically he's saying, this son of yours is just like you. You both ignore the rules. You disregard them like they don't matter. He's furious. And you see here that there's no love for the father. There's no relationship there. He's been doing what he's supposed to do to get what he wants. He has no heart for the Father. And since he's been focused on obeying all the rules, he has no love for anyone else, only contempt. You have to wonder if part of the reason that the younger brother didn't leave was to get away from the judgmental and hateful attitude of his big brother. You see, the oldest son performed and he thought that that performance should earn him everything he wanted the respect and the and the rights and the privileges and the honor that he deserved but you can tell that he is no closer to the father than the younger son was when he was in a distant country 
He hates his father for not following the rules. He's just as sinful. He, he, he's just as, as hurtful. He's just as shameful. He feels justified in it. But he rejects his father just as much. It's a man by the name of Williams, who's a, a Bible teacher in Northern California. And he defines sin like this. Sin is more than breaking the rules. It is breaking the relationship. You see, both sons were lost. One of them's found. Both sons uh, were outside the house. One of them refuses to come back in. Both sons had cut themselves off from the father. But one of them is enjoying the delight and the freedom of a restored relationship. Story ends with the father kind of overlooking the insolence, the attack, the pride, the, the rudeness of his son. And he addresses his boy, and the, the word in the Greek means, my beloved son, my precious child. See, in essence, the father is saying, I love you not because of your performance. I love you because you're my son, and I want a love relationship with you. See, well, what matters is being alive to each other rather than dead to each other. This story is Jesus' loving appeal to the Pharisees. You see, God loves them just as much. Just as the, as the father in, in the story opened his heart to the older brother. Didn't slap him down, didn't push him away, but appealed to him. This is Jesus opening his heart to those Pharisees, appealing to them to come in. Now we know that, all, that a few of them did, but most of them just continued to grow more um, belligerent, more resenting, more hateful, more angry. Until a couple of months later, they stirred up the crowd, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. See, the heart of the legalist ultimately finds itself hating God, wanting him dead. Now let me come back to my opening questions real quickly. How do you think God looks at you? What do you think he wants from you? Well, he looks at you like this father did his two boys. His heart yearns for you. And what he wants from you is not performance, it's a relationship. He wants the freedom to just smother you with kisses, to hug you, to love you without restraint, to, to overwhelm you with his love and to celebrate the relationship. I'm sure he wants your behavior to be right, but that's because he loves you. God designed reality. And the instructions he gives us are because he knows how it works and he wants to protect us from damaging and destroying each other and ourselves. But again, it's not the behavior that brings life. It's the relationship and the behavior flows out of the relationship. You don't uh, perform and if you perform well enough, then God basically has to accept you begrudgingly because those are the rules. No, you come to him Stinking, covered with pig slime. 
You come without presumption, knowing that you deserve nothing but hoping in His grace. And as He sees you a long ways off, He runs to you, wraps His arms around you, puts His robe of righteousness around you, puts the signet ring on your finger, calling you to be His partner in this kingdom. He puts the shoes of sonship on your feet. He kills the fatted calf and throws a celebration. And as His love overwhelms you, there is nothing you want more than to love Him back. There's nothing you want more than to honor Him. There's nothing you want more than to please Him and obey Him. See again, the behavior comes out of the relationship, never the other way around. You don't behave your way into the relationship. If you try, you end up like the older son, like the Pharisees, who... Who, who look down on anybody who doesn't follow their rules and reject them to treat people harshly, judgmentally. End up like these Pharisees whose heart turns against God. Thinking they're protecting God's reputation, thinking they're protecting society, they turn up mean and hateful, angry, especially at God. Now, how do you really feel about God? That is the fundamental question. See somebody you need to get what you can from and then get away from so you can enjoy it? Run to a far country. Well, or is he somebody like Jesus says? A father who loves you and will throw a better celebration for you than any party you could throw. Or maybe is God... Someone who loves you, you know, when you first become a Christian. But then he's got all these expectations. He's got these rules and, and he expects you to follow the rules and live up to his expectations and your family's expectations and your friend's expectations and your church's expectations. And if you keep up a good face and you live up to all of this, then you'll stay in his favor. And is the, is the struggle to keep up killing you? It will. If not physically, it'll kill you spiritually for sure. You'll either give up and become a sinner. There's somebody who just leaves God out, who maybe uh, prays a little bit, maybe uh, goes to church once in a while, but really leaves God out. Or you'll keep striving, you'll keep fighting, and end up a stranger to God, angry at Him in your heart. Either way, you lose what it's all about. You lose that love relationship with Him. It really is a matter of truly seeing the heart of God that Jesus came to show us. So now whose picture of God do you believe? The world's picture? Then run away from Him. He's dangerous. The religious picture? Well, then do your best to measure up and step on anybody who doesn't follow your rules. Or Jesus' picture. Well then run to Him. Confess your sins to Him. Humble yourself to Him. Hope on His grace and let Him throw His arms around you. Let Him welcome you home. Let Him welcome you into the house. Into the celebration. Let's pray. Lord, I confess how uh, often my uh, vision of you is so distorted. I run from you, or I try to, to, 
to buck up and, and measure up, end up frustrated and angry at you because it doesn't work and things don't happen the way they should. Lord, I pray that you would open each of our eyes, everyone here, that we would see you as you really are, a loving Father who wants a relationship. From that relationship, it frees us to live lives that are healthy and constructive. Lord, I thank you that you uh, paid the, the price for that. Lord, help us to see you honestly the way you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.